Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fanville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing a series entitled 50 Days That Changed the World. If you're looking for a church home, a place that you can connect with other believers and serve together and learn and love together, we would love to have you visit us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. You can also email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series, sharing a message entitled The Unfinished Task from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Let's listen together. Well, Memorial Day has a new meaning, at least for people living in Uvalde, Texas. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uvalde is really a long way south. It's a small town of about 16,000 people, approximately the size of of Siloam Springs. And the town is less than 100 miles from the Mexico border. It has no real claim to fame except maybe uh, that Matthew McConaughey came from there. But there's some things not really ought to be bragged about. And... Historically, they did have uh, one who was from their fine city uh, serve as vice president a number of years ago, many years ago. But basically, its only claim to fame is, is that Uvalde is at a crossroads of the two longest highways in the United States. One runs north and south, border to border, Mexico to Canada. The other runs east and west, sea to sea, and there lies Uvalde right there where they cross each other. I love that part of Texas. I love basically all of Texas. Please don't hold that against me. I'm not saying I love the Longhorns. I don't love their stinking softball team. I don't love their even more stinking football team or basketball team or baseball team, but I love Texas. Spent 30 years, Tony and I did, in our ministry in that state. I love that part of Texas, at the very south end of, of the hill country. There's good people there, mostly Hispanic, with a very rich culture, a hard-working, working-class population, and they're great Tex-Mex restaurants. I love Uvalde, Texas, and my heart grieves for those good people. As you know, last Tuesday, Salvador Ramos, by the way, do you find it ironic that his name means Savior? In some uses, it can even refer to the Messiah. That 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, for whatever reason, reasons we don't know and probably will never know, crashed through a gate, entered and unlocked an open door into an elementary school, killing 21 people, 19 children, two adults. 
Uvalde will never be the same again. Just like Columbine, Sandy Hook, or for that matter, Bethlehem, a slaughter of innocent children took place. And in none of those other places did anyone ever think that it could or would happen to them. Just like we don't think anything like that could ever happen in Fayetteville or Springdale or Farmington. But folks, a Uvalde can happen anywhere. Why could it happen anywhere? Several reasons. Because of the exceeding sinfulness of sin that is present everywhere. There is nowhere you can go. There is no utopia, although there's a little town named that not far from Uvalde. There is no true utopia where you can go that's all peace-loving, where sin doesn't exist. Sin leavens the whole lump, and it has filled this earth because of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That's why these things could happen anywhere, but also because we live, now listen to me, we live in a culture of death in America. Folks, we have been killing our children for a long, long time. We have been murdering the unborn for a long, long time. Like the children of Israel, we've been offering our children on the altars of Baal for a long, long time. As one pastor put it, we have created a culture that does not value life, that does not honor God, that does not respect authority. We are reaping the consequences of those actions, and that's not going to be reversed by a security guard or a metal detector. And I say amen to his words. They are true. For many generations now, we have been rejecting, I know it's not you and me, but greatly speaking, our culture has been rejecting the idea of a creator, a creator that we are responsible to. We have taught kids that they have evolved from lower life forms. And then when they step up and step out, and act like animals, we wonder why. We scratch our heads. Where in the world, if not from God, if not from His Word, where in the world is a civilization ever to learn the right way to live towards God and towards each other? Do you think that somehow the evolution of life 
that we've evolved beyond our animalism and our bent on destruction of each other and somehow in becoming human and becoming intellectual that we are suddenly going to be good. No, we just get worse and worse. And God and the truth of his word that there is a creator, that we are moral human beings, that we are responsible to him and only in him can we know the right way to live. Beloved, people need the Lord today. Can I say to you, and it's all I'll say about you, Valde, that Uvalde is why Jesus gave us the Great Commission. We've been for four or five weeks now looking at these days between the resurrection, between Passover, the death of Christ, and the resulting resurrection of Christ until he ascends to heaven, until 10 days later, Pentecost, from Passover to Pentecost, these 50 days, and what Jesus had to do and had to say during that time period. That he spent time showing his disciples that he was indeed resurrected, connecting the dots, stitching together the different bits and pieces of truth that they knew so that they could see a cohesive uh, picture and a uh, mosaic of what the truth of the Old Testament and New Testament means so that they would, going forward, when entrusted with the kingdom of God and to carry it out in this world, they would do so with courage and with strength, with boldness, without hesitation, even when they were called on to give their lives as Jesus was called on to give his. And one of those events that took place is this event we know as the Great Commission, that he gave them their marching orders. And I should correct that statement. He gave us our marching orders. For he did not give this commission, this commandment to 11 men. He gave it to the church of which we are a part today. Uvalde is why Jesus gave us the Great Commission. Folks, our rescue will not come from Washington, D.C. in our culture. Our rescue will not come from Austin, Texas or from Little Rock, Arkansas. Our rescue can only come from above. We can take away guns, we can elect new and different politicians, we can pass new and more laws, but we cannot change people's hearts. Only Christ and his gospel can do that, and that's what we desperately need. Now, 2,000 years ago, a ragtag group of uneducated men learned the truth of the power of the gospel. After Jesus left, they preached the message of a crucified Savior who rose from the dead, and people were saved, and people were changed. So much so that statements like these were made by the opponents of the gospel. They said to these apostles, we told you to shut up about Jesus, and yet you have, notice the words, filled Jerusalem with your doctrine." They filled their city with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Jerusalem at that time numbered, population-wise, about twice what the city of Fayetteville is today. 
They filled that city with their teaching. And then later, as the gospel spread, and it finally came to Greece and to Thessalonica, we find these words. These men, speaking of the missionaries, the apostles, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. Turned the world upside down? Really? Can I suggest to you that the world today needs to be turned upside down? That our country needs to be turned upside down? That Northwest Arkansas needs to be turned upside down? That Calvary Baptist Church needs to be turned upside down and inside out by the doctrine and the truth of the gospel. Not only, by the way, in fulfilling the Great Commission, are we sharing the gospel of Christ with others? Did you know that in doing so, we're actually helping to usher in the second coming of the Lord? Did you know that? Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now listen to this. And then the end will come. By fulfilling the Great Commission, by obeying Christ, by filling our cities, our towns, our neighborhoods, our communities with the gospel of Christ, and as that spreads throughout the world, we are ushering in the second coming of Christ. So with all of that in mind, hear these words from Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 16. This is the last paragraph of Matthew's gospel. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you're familiar with that passage. We could probably just go ahead and have a closing word of prayer and a closing song and a blessing and all go home, right? Well, if I were to ask for a motion in second, you'd be on your feet so fast. But I do feel led to say a few things about it. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to give you three pegs to hang your hat on this morning, okay, from this passage. Peg number one, the master. Peg number one is the master. They went into Galilee, these 11 disciples. They went to the mountain that had been appointed them, that Jesus had directed them. There was an appointed place. You remember Jesus has appeared several times to these men, 
But if you'll recall, on the morning of the resurrection, when the women who were the first ones to get to the, to the uh, cemetery, to the graveyard, to the burial place of Jesus, finding the tomb, finding the stone rolled away, the tomb empty, there was an angel that spoke to them and said, go tell his disciples and Peter, because he's still one of them, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Mark records those words. Matthew records those words. So these men... The next day or two, they go north back to Galilee where they were from. And Jesus appeared to them several times. We talked about one last week there by the Sea of Galilee. You remember where Jesus told them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And we find that he restored Peter to active service, forgave him. They were reconciled. But they also had been directed to go to this mountain. Some of you have been to the Holy Land and, and you have stood on the top of this mountain, the place that we believe that it happened, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful setting, high on a mountain, very majestic. And there they have been directed and there Jesus meets with them again. And it says when they met him there, that they worshipped him, but some What? Doubted. How could they doubt? This is, after all, the third or fourth time that he has appeared to them. He has talked to them. They have touched him. They have seen the scars. How could they doubt him? Some commentators in talking about this say, well, it's not the 11 who doubted that there were bound to be others, other hangers-on that kind of followed along with them. Remember, there was always an entourage with Jesus and his followers. But we don't read here that anyone else besides he and his 11 disciples were there. We don't know if there's anyone else. So it would sound that, that even among his disciples, though they worshipped him, some were still struggling with being convinced, even though he has shown them infallible proofs. Acts chapter 1. They still were struggling. Listen to what this one writer, John Bloom, says about that. Do you find it remarkable that some disciples doubted this extraordinary phenomenon? I find it both remarkable and eminently reasonable and comforting because we find ourselves in good company when we and our brothers and sisters also struggle with doubts. Do you ever struggle with doubts? Do you ever doubt Christ and his promises? Do you ever doubt what you read in the Word? Do you ever doubt this whole Christianity thing? <laughs> do you find yourself doubting that, that Jesus will do for you what He has done for others? 
Now, I know that it might be politically, that's not the right word, but whatever kind of correct, to say, oh, no, I never doubt any of that stuff. Let me tell you something. If you never doubted it, you wouldn't live like you live. You say, Pastor, you don't have any business to say that. Yes, I do. I'm your pastor. God told me I could say that to you. Listen, none of us would live like we live if we didn't struggle with doubts. If we had absolute total assurance about everything, always taking God at His word. Let me tell you something. Our lives would look a lot different than our lives look. We struggle with doubts. The word means a wavering, hesitant uncertainty. A general lack of confidence. How much confidence do you have in the Word of God as it applies to your life, as it applies to your family, as it applies to our church? Now, I, I won't linger on this too long. We need to, we've got to move on. But I find it very interesting that in that little book called the book of Jude. You remember that little book way over towards the end of the New Testament? Just one chapter long. Jude, who is writing that, is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He was not a believer. He didn't believe that his, his elder brother was the Messiah. He lived his life in doubt about who his brother, his half-brother was until after the resurrection, and like James, not James the brother of John, but James another half-brother of Jesus. Remember, Jesus had at least three or four half-brothers and several half-sisters, and none of them believed in Jesus as the Savior Messiah until after his resurrection. And so Jude, this doubting half-brother, writes this little book of Jude, and towards the end of that little one-chapter book, he tells us how to treat one another in the church. And one of the things that he says is this, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. You know what one of our responsibilities is as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know what one of our responsibilities that we are supposed to give attention to is to help one another's faith be stronger. Now, if someone were to speak up in a Sunday school class or a life group and just go ahead and blurt it right out there, you know, I have trouble believing the Bible when it says that. What is our tendency? Shame them? Kind of hold them at a distance? Instead, we are here to help one another. We are here to... Another definition of the, of the word doubt there in the book of Jude is being at odds with oneself. Have you ever been at odds with yourself over what you believe and what you hold to. He's saying, have mercy on one another when you doubt. You were there to help each other. I cannot help but think that Jude is speaking of himself when he doubted. 
And it was only later that he believed that he now understands what it means for people who doubt. Before we move along to peg number two, let me say one other thing about the master. They worshiped him, but some doubted. And then in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if you go ahead and and scope out and you survey the Gospels and that word authority, you'll find that a number of times it tells us what kind of authority Jesus had. In Matthew 7, he taught with authority. He was an authoritative teacher. He was different than the typical teachers of the day. He taught with authority. In Matthew 9, it says he has the authority to forgive sins in people. In Matthew 10, he has authority over unclean spirits and to cast out demons. Also, he has the authority over all diseases. In Luke 12, he has authority to cast people into hell. He has that authority. He has the authority to execute judgment, John chapter 5. He has the authority to lay down his life and to take it back up. And John 17 says he has the authority over all people and to give eternal life. In fact, Paul comes along in Romans 13 and says there is no authority except that which comes from God. And we know from reading the Gospels that the religious, quote, authorities of the day, these religious authorities were continually challenging his authority, saying, Jesus, you don't have authority. We have the authority. But what did Paul say? There is no authority except from God. You know what that means? That means when a policeman pulls you over for speeding, he has his authority to do so because God gave it to him. That means that the cities are governed by people who have authority that were given to them by God. Now understand that human authorities can misuse and abuse their authority. And they do all the time. But ultimately, all authority comes from God. And Jesus comes along here and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what does that mean to you and me sitting here today on whatever day this is? What is it? May the 29th? Is that what it is? 28th? Whatever day it is. Sitting right here in this place at 1128, what does that mean to us. If all authority has been given to Jesus, listen, there's none left over for you. There's none left over for me. 
I don't have the authority to live any way that I want to live. I don't have the authority to do what I want to do. I don't have the authority to just make up the rules all by myself. Although we do that kind of thing all the time, understand we are defying Jesus as our Savior and Lord when we seek to exercise our own authority. You say, well, are you saying we're not free moral agents? I'm saying to you that I hate the term. You can glory in it all you want to, and so can I. We have the appearance of being free. We have the appearance of being moral. But understand that ultimately every single one of us will stand before God, the only one who can execute actual authority, and we will stand before him and give account for every thought, every word, every deed we have ever done. That's why we must plead the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive us, to cleanse us, to cause us to surrender fully to his will, to his authority, to his direction in life. Folks, that's the only way that great tragedies in life can be avoided is when people surrender their lives to Christ. I don't know if Salvador Ramos had ever heard the gospel. I don't know if he ever surrendered to the gospel, though I have serious doubts because of the ultimate actions that he took. Salvador Ramos may very well be the greatest tragedy of all of last week. Because I think it's almost all but certain that he is burning in a devil's hell today. Not because he shot children, but because he never surrendered to Christ. The master, he has all authority. Now notice very quickly the mission, and I will hurry through this. The mission, this is verse 19 and the first part of verse 20. Because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because he has the authority, therefore you do this. Go and make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples? Can I say to you that in evangelical America, over the last couple of hundred years, we have been, I say good, we have been very uh, proficient in some ways of making converts. In the decades that I grew up in, and some of you grew up in the 50s, the 60s, even into the 70s, almost every sermon was a salvation sermon. There was very little building up of the body, but there was evangelism being preached and taught all the time. We had revivals that weren't revivals. They were evangelistic meetings. We set up tents. We knocked on doors. We passed out uh, leaflets and tracts. We did all these things to see people saved. We went down the road. I've done it. Some of you have done it. 
We've knocked on doors and we had our salvation plan to share. We would lead somebody to say a prayer and and declare Jesus uh, uh, as their Savior. And then we would go on to the next door and never see those people again. We would walk into a group uh, of of people at at state fairs or wherever there was gatherings together. Brother Larry Markham and I did that so much as as students at CBC and serving uh, in Washington State together. We evangelized and evangelized, but oftentimes we didn't see a lot after that. We were good at evangelism. But understand this about the Great Commission. He doesn't tell us to make decisions. He doesn't tell us to make converts. He tells us to make disciples. Now I hope every last one of those people were truly saved. But I don't know if they were or not. Because we never had the opportunity of seeing whether the gospel really took root in their lives. And did you know that the Bible teaches that you can't know for sure about the salvation of someone unless you see? Now, I believe that like the thief, there are those at the last moments of life that profess faith in Christ and they are in heaven today. But for those that it's not their last moment in life, it's time that will tell whether or not they're truly a follower of Christ. Spurgeon once preached a revival meeting, an evangelistic meeting in a part of England. When he came home to his pulpit, to his home church, one of his men said, well, how many converts did you have this week, Pastor Spurgeon? He said, I don't know. We'd have to go back in a year or two to see. To see who truly had become a disciple of the Lord. And he tells us how to disciple here. He lays it out for us very clearly. There are three steps involved in making disciples. First of all, we evangelize. That is the sharing of the gospel, the seeking to help people understand they're responsible for their sins, to pray and to trust Christ with their heart and with their life. Evangelize. But then he said, then baptize. Baptize. People who are not willing to follow Christ in baptism, there's a very real reason to question their conversion. It is the first step of obedience to the Lord. Evangelize and then baptize. It is not the way we get saved. It is the outward profession of our salvation to others. It is a public confession of faith. And then number three, get ready. This is going to make you uncomfortable. Number three, you got a catechism. Catechism, teaching them to observe all things. I know if you're a Baptist and you grew up Baptist, you have a hard time with the word catechize or specifically the word catechism because it's identified with the Catholic Church or with other very liturgical churches uh, that have a very formal way of teaching doctrine to their people. But understand, it is a good word. It means to teach, to instruct systematically, and specifically to do so by questions and answers. And it's a way of helping people grow up in the Lord. You and I not only need to be evangelized 
and baptized, we need to be catechized. We need to be taught. We need to be uh, uh, made to become adults in our faith, in growing up in the Lord. And so that is the mission. And then the third peg is the motivation as well as the means. What did he say at the end of verse 20? I am with you always to the end of the age. The motivation. Christ is with us and will always be with us. I am with you always, all the days of your life. To the end of the age, to the consummation of all things. To the time when this present order and this present nature, till this creation as we know it, comes to an end, I will be with you. That means I will be with you wherever you go. I will be with you all hours of the day. That is the motivation and the means. What a promise we have from the Lord. From the lips of our Savior. He is with us to prompt us when we need to be prompted to speak or to act. He is there to direct our steps and to guide us. He is there to empower our efforts. That's why Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's why Hebrews 13, 5 tells us, And Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Well, you can close up your Bibles if you'd like. I have one last thing to share with you in closing. A number of years ago, Tony and I worked in college ministry on a major university campus in Texas as part of the 30 or so years we lived in that great state. It was some of our best and most blessed years of ministry. There's something about working with university students that keeps you on the raw edge of life and ministry. There's very little pretense, very little hypocrisy. Whatever comes in their head usually comes out their mouth and you have to be prepared for that 24 hours a day. They will challenge you at every step. At least that's how I remember it then. They'll challenge your beliefs, your convictions, your lifestyle, and all the rest. But when you worked through and counseled, spent time, hours with college students, when you worked through all the stuff, in a college student's life and their questions about life, you usually got down to some form of this bottom line question. Who am I and why am I here? What is life all about? And what is my part in it? 
And in those eight small words, only 19 letters long, is the real crux of the matter. And when you allow me to step aside for just a moment, when we say the crux of the matter, we, we know what we're talking about, what's the bottom line here, what's the crux of the matter. But do you understand the word crux is Latin for cross? And the question is, or the statement is, what is the cross of the matter? At what point in the bottom line of life does the cross cast its shadow over our path? What is the crux of the matter? What is the cross of the matter when it comes to my life, my ambitions, and my plans? <clears throat> if that person, that college student was a believer, a professed follower of Christ, I would always go to one verse <clears throat> with him. I think we're going to put it on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 where God's Word says, speaking to believers like you and me, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The next verse goes on to say, at one point we were not even a people, but now we are the people of God. At one time we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. God says to Calvary Baptist Church, you are a chosen race. You are a nation of special privilege. You are precious to the Lord. You are a royal priesthood. You are a member of a royal family. The king is God. And you are a priesthood. You are priests and priestesses in the work of God on this planet. You are a holy nation, a Holy company of people. Holy, set apart for God. You are a people for His own possession. You are peculiar in more ways than one. <laughs> Meaning you are unique. You are separate. You are preserved. You are His peculiar possession. That's who you are. And why are we here? That we might proclaim, that we might preach, declare, and evangelize. We are here to proclaim the excellencies, the glorious deeds, the gracious acts of God, the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Dear friends, the mission field is not half a world away. Oh, it is there. But you don't have to make a long plane ride to get to the mission field. All you've got to do is step out the doors of this church building. The mission field is our cities and towns here in northwest Arkansas. 
It's our school campuses right here where we live. It's our university campuses at our doorstep. It is our neighborhoods all around us. It's our own homes and our own families. Why? Because nobody knows who the next Salvador Ramos is or where he or she may live. They may be closer to us than we know. So we live out our lives as Christians and we share the gospel with those who need to know Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise and the blessing of it. May your name be honored and glorified. May we be faithful to remember that the Great Commission was given to us. May we live as though it depended completely upon us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.